My guest this morning has done two tours of combat medicine in Ukraine. It's Arthur Bruck. Arthur, good morning. Thank you for joining me today. And first off, what inspired you to want to go to Ukraine to do combat medicine? Um, well, I, uh, I'm a very firm believer that when you have the ability to respond to some sort of injustice, it is your responsibility to respond to that injustice. So I've been fortunate enough to um, have a career that has been focused in uh, emergency medicine and combat medicine. And uh, when the war broke out um, in uh, early last year, I felt uh, a calling to need to provide some level of medical support to the fighting forces of Ukraine. And for many people who would like to perhaps volunteer over there, they wouldn't know how to start. So how do you first tell somebody, I want to go to Ukraine and help people out? Uh, well, I mean, that's honestly a little bit of a, of a complicated question. I think it kind of depends on on what your, your qualifications are and what you really want to do. Um, I really started looking just online for opportunities. Um, one of the very first things I did was actually just uh, gather supplies here in the United States and send them to a uh, Ukrainian woman who was trying to gather supplies for her husband and um, and his uh, platoon that was uh, very that was very short on uh, the equipment that they needed. So I was just pulling things together that I had and and shipping them out there to her. Um, but other than that, a lot of what I did was just search online uh, for organizations, uh, some of them more well-known, uh, such as like Team Rubicon, and uh, just really looked for opportunities. Early on in the war, it was very easy uh, to find everyone. Everyone wanted to help, so there was uh, a lot of opportunity um, to make something happen, and it was really more of a matter of finding what was the right fit for what I was looking for at that time. Arthur, talk me through your first week or so when you first went to Ukraine. You obviously had some perceptions of what it might have been like. You got there. How was perception balanced with reality of what it was like? Um, well, I think, uh, as my loved ones could probably tell you, because they were very concerned about me doing this in the first place, I think from the U.S., there's this perception that as soon as you cross the border from Poland, uh, everything is just constantly blowing up around you all the time. And uh, that's not really necessarily the case. Um, it's important for us, especially as Americans, to understand that Ukraine is a very, very large country. Um, it's the largest country in Europe. And it is also a country that is uh, that has been um, changed by uh, years of, of internal conflict and a pull between both the East and the West. So there's a lot of dichotomy in Ukraine in terms of what you see and what you feel on, uh, as, as you move across the country. Western Ukraine and uh, Lviv very much feels like a, a European city or a European country. A lot of the architecture is, is new and, and very beautiful. And as you move further east, you start getting much more of a feeling of uh, a much more uh, Eastern and Russian influence. It's sort of what you might imagine as like the Eastern Bloc. Um, but it's the perception of everything just being blown up all the time is not necessarily true. Now, that being said, uh, air raid sirens are going off all the time. Um, it seems at this point that there's even war fatigue from the people who are living there because all they're ever hearing is these sirens going off. 
And at some point, you just have to kind of continue to live your life. Um, as you move further east across the country, the war becomes much more evident. There are buildings that have, have been uh, destroyed and knocked down. Um, you're starting to go through checkpoints. Uh, the, the evidence of the war is much more prominent. But life in the, in the big cities still functions. It's still a uh, thriving, bustling city or cities that, are, uh, that still have shops open and cafes. And the Ukrainian people as a whole have done a very good job of um, maintaining commerce uh, despite having very difficult um, challenges to deal with, such as during the, the first time I was there was um, November, December of uh, 22. And this was a time when Russia was doing everything they could to destroy the infrastructure and take out heat and electricity. So businesses were preheating water and, and making it so that you could have a menu of things that was available when they didn't have heat and electricity. Um, so it's, it was, even though it was a horrific sight to see this beautiful country being torn down and being destroyed, it was also beautiful to see the um, steadfast of the Ukrainian people who were standing up for what they believed was, is, to be, uh, is to be just and right and that every person in this country is in this fight in some form or another. Arthur, if that city was not being attacked, why did the air raid sirens continue to go off? Uh, well, so the way it, it works is, especially as you go further east, anytime any sort of missile is launched over the oblast or sort of what we would consider like the state that a place is in, uh, the entire city uh, goes gets the, the air raids. Um, so as you go further east, those are very common because you kind of have to pass over those those oblasts in order to get to the west. So um, it's just sort of a, a constant flow of of air raid sirens uh, as these missiles are being fired, even if where you are is not necessarily what's being targeted. When you made your first trip to Ukraine, did you speak Ukrainian? And when you are there, how much of an issue is the language barrier? Uh, no, I speak, I still to this day speak very little to know Ukrainian. Um, and uh, primarily because I was working a lot with soldiers this last time, pretty much the only uh, words that I do know are, are the swear words. Um, but, uh, the, the language is, is also sort of a strange dynamic because, um, most Ukrainians speak both Ukrainian and Russian. And even though there are similarities in the language, it's still a very different language. Um, but the Ukrainians don't like outsiders speaking Russian. And even though it's a much more common language for people to know, uh, at this point, they feel that people coming into their country and speaking Russian is somewhat of a sign of disrespect. Um, Ukrainians will, kind of, will jump back and forth between Ukrainian and Russian uh, very fluidly and sort of intermix the languages together. But since the start of the war, and really since the start of the war in 2014, uh, Ukrainians have made a much bigger push to solely speak Ukrainian. Um, I have a, a good friend I worked with the first time I was there who uh, just had a baby, and he has been very adamant that uh, his, his daughter will not learn Russian. She will solely speak Ukrainian. They will only speak Ukrainian around her because they don't want to have that Russian influence continue in their country after this war has, has ended. 
So um, in terms of the difficulty of speaking the language, um, a lot of Ukrainians understand some English, but um, I was also with going with organizations that we had very skilled interpreters who were very fluent in English. So I would do my best to keep them uh, close at hand, and also the use of my Google Translate app was a lifesaver while I was over there. How much of your time in the two tours was spent at or near the front lines? Uh, so I guess the, the, the first time, I wouldn't really consider what I did uh, necessarily like a combat tour. Um, I was working with a, a British-based organization called UK Med, and um, they were doing a lot of different things around the country, including mobile clinics, um, surgical consults, and training for their surgeons. Uh, but what I was primarily doing was training, and we were training um, civilians and, who were in uh, primarily high-risk jobs, such as the infrastructure workers, the people who were working on the petroleum, uh, the petroleum factories and um, the electrical substations. Um, so we would, we would be going out sometimes fairly far to the east in these areas that were being struck consistently, but we weren't necessarily um, being targeted or what you would call on the front line. Um, this last time that I went was uh, late June through July of 2023, and that was definitely much more risky. Um, we were in pretty far east Ukraine. Um, we were training outside of Pokrovsk, which um, is kind of your last little uh city of civilization before you get to where a lot of the fighting is happening right now. Um, the first 10 days that we were there, we were training right outside of Bakhmut. And uh, anybody who's been following the war has probably heard uh, the city of Bakhmut a lot. It's been uh, the main point of contention between the Ukrainian and Russian forces and the Wagner group for, for months. And while we were there, and we were doing this training, there was active shelling happening around us fairly consistently. Um, and the, the volley of artillery was just sort of a, a symphony of a reminder as to why we were there. Because we knew as these explosions were happening on either side of us that there were people actively dying. And that's why the work that we were doing is so important, is we needed to give these Ukrainian people a chance to survive past um, the, a chance to survive when in a war that is unlike anything that this world has ever honestly seen. Do the Ukrainian people greet you with open arms? Are they happy? Are they grateful that someone from the West is there to help them out? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, there, there is uh, a perception of the West in Ukraine as, um, as sort of, I guess, what the Ukrainians have been reaching for. Um, my, first, uh, my first deployment when I was working for, for UK Med, I was working with a lot of uh, British individuals as well. And it was very clear about a week in that uh, it, I, I wasn't necessary in the training because our translators and our, and our Ukrainian medical students that we were working with they could teach the class that we were teaching just fine. But the fact that we were, that we as Westerners were the ones there presenting it was kind of what we called Western bait. It was just the fact that we were there validating the information that was being translated and, and being spoken 
that gave it um, that gave it some weight and gave it some uh, some validity. Um, in terms of this last deployment and what we were doing uh, with the the soldiers and with the combat medics, um, they were unbelievably grateful. They uh, all they're really asking for is is more. They're asking for more Western help, for more Western support. Um, they know and they are very conscious of the fact that uh, they would not still be fighting the way they are if the West had not intervened when it did. When Russia first invaded in what they called the Big War and they pushed all the way to Kiev, uh, the Ukrainians know very well that their country would not have stood if uh, the U.S. and NATO allies had not uh, started providing the weaponry and the training that uh, we have. And so they are very, very grateful. But the reality is they still need more. They are fighting a war that the U.S. and NATO allies have a vested interest in them winning. But all we are able to do is provide uh, weaponry and training and the people who are now being sent to the front lines are Ukrainian civilians who are being given very small amounts of training before they're being put in fighting positions. That's a great point, Arthur. And it's not just the Ukrainian soldiers. Isn't it also an essentially undertrained Russian military as well? Um, I mean, I can't speak quite as literally to that because obviously I wasn't there working with the Russian soldiers. Um, I can tell you that the casualty rate on both sides of this war is immense. It's something that we have never seen in this world because we are fighting a 21st century war with 21st century weaponry, but using 20th century tactics like trench warfare. So I guarantee you that the, the Russian military is also taking massive amounts of casualties and they are uh, probably putting um, very undertrained people in those positions. Um, some of what we did see while we were there was a uh, lack of skill from uh, Russian artillery, which uh, they're, they're very good at, at placing their artillery rounds in lines of sight, but they're not very good at, uh, at vectoring them to places they can't actively see and, and bracket into one, one location. Um, so it's a, there's definitely a lack of training on that side, but a year into a war where the casualty rates are in the hundreds every day, uh, it's not surprising that the skill level of the people who are fighting on both sides has decreased dramatically. And it's important to note, too, that the Ukrainians really want to align themselves with the West and Western culture. So they certainly have a lot besides their own personal survival. It's their nation, their country's survival as well. Well, absolutely. Um, there is a Western feel in Ukraine and a pull of, of wanting to not, I don't want to say that, that Ukraine wants to be the West. Ukraine wants to be Ukraine. It wants to be able to be whatever country it decides to be, and it develops into. But the analogy that I am using is that I feel Ukraine is fighting now 
the war that the American forefathers fought for our freedom. They are fighting for their independence and for their ability to develop into their own free nation. They, Ukraine is an independent and free nation, and they want to remain an independent and free nation without Russian influence. They want the ability to become whatever they choose to become. And they've been aligning themselves with the West for a long time. They have a desire to be a part of the EU. They have a desire to be part of NATO. They have a desire to enjoy the same rights and freedoms that we as Americans take for granted every single day. I get the feeling that in this country, there's becoming a fatigue about news about that war. Do you get any sense in Ukraine that there's war fatigue? Um, I get a, I, I wouldn't call what's happening in Ukraine war fatigue. I would say that uh, the Ukrainian people are, um, are trying to find ways to continue to live their lives outside of the constant threat of war. Um, I don't think that they have the same type of war fatigue that we have here because we are so far separated from it. Um, people are still very actively engaged in this war across the entire country. Um, no matter where you go, you see soldiers. Um, no matter where you go, you see people who are having their friends, family, and loved ones uh, conscripted and going to the front line. So it's much more in the Ukrainian face every single day. And the, the news of the war is something that they're being fed every single day and that they're actively engaged in. People have their Telegram accounts and their, single, their signal accounts, and they are getting um, information about where things are being shot and uh, casualties and videos every single day. So they're inundated with it. However, they still have to have a country that has commerce. They still have to have a country that has that that uh, they enjoy being in. So they are trying to get on with their lives and and continue to live. But I would say it's probably more uh, akin to um, what it was like in the U.S. during World War II when people were actively being sent off to war, and we were we were in it even if we weren't actively fighting. Arthur, do you think Ukraine can win this war? Uh, I am very confident that Ukraine will win this war. Um, I can tell you that if Russia is going to be successful, they're going to have to kill every single Ukrainian across that country because Ukraine will not, will not stop fighting, no matter what happens. When the war first broke out, the, uh, the, every, every single citizen in Ukraine was engaged in it. People were, were building camouflage nets and Molotov cocktails in parks. Kids were being taught how to essentially make improvised explosives in case the Russians got to their city. Ukraine is not going to let Russia uh, take over their country. It's not going to happen. What I can tell you is that if Ukraine is going to be ultimately successful and retake all of the land that has been stolen from them, then including Crimea and the Eastern, uh, the Eastern Oblast, they are going to have to have continued support from the U.S. and NATO because ultimately their success is very much based off of our support. 
and our future success once this war is over and once Ukraine wins is very much based on our continued support and our continued support after the fighting stops. And I think that's a very important point to make in all this is that once bullets stop flying and artillery starts going off, there's still a nation that's going to have to be rebuilt. And it is our responsibility as the West and as their supporting nation to help them become, uh, rebuild a nation that has been destroyed by this war. Is there a fear of what could happen if Putin gets backed into a corner? Um, I think that if I could answer that question effectively, I would probably be briefing the Pentagon instead of doing this radio show. Um, but, I, I've, I mean, of course there is. Um, you know, I think Putin is out of his mind. And uh, I, I am scared for what hap- will happen if he gets pushed into a corner. Um, I'm, I am scared that if he might rather see the end of the world than live in embarrassment. But I don't know that. You know, I've never met the man personally, and I hope I never do. Um, but I think that the Ukrainians are so uh, steadfast in how in continuing this fight that they will... Um, what that they they obviously want Putin to be pushed into a corner, and Putin has shown his hand at this point. He Russia had been viewed for a long time as this big bad wolf, but the fact that the Ukrainian people have been able to push him back so far and push the Russians back so far and stop them at their line shows the fact that Russia is not as uh, scary of a threat when you have the support of the West and the NATO allies behind you. Arthur, I realize this may be a multiple-choice question, but while you're doing your combat medicine tour, plural, two of them, in Ukraine, what's a typical day like for you? Oof, well, that's, um, the first, the first uh, deployment that I did with UK Med, um, it was sort of a hit or miss. I was with a... Um, a fairly large group of other trainers, so I had days off. I was living in Dnipro, uh, which is uh, an eastern an eastern city, um, and some of my days would consist of waking up, often driving uh, two to three hours to go to a training, training for, for about four hours, and then um, teaching people how to put on tourniquets, pack wounds, make improvised tourniquets, uh, keep, people, keep people's airways open, deal with blast injuries. And then we would drive two to three hours back, and I would go to sleep. Um, the second deployment was uh, a little bit more, I guess, dynamic. Uh, we were staying much further east, uh, at least initially, and we would uh, wake up, have a very uh, humble breakfast, and uh, drive down some um, very uh, bombed-out roads, to small compounds where we would train uh, small groups of uh, fighters who were actively engaged in the war. Um, We were able to teach them not only the basics of putting on tourniquets and wound packing and some of the things that we had also been teaching just the infrastructure workers as well, but we were teaching them things like uh, blood administration, which is uh, really the best thing that you can do for somebody who has actively hemorrhaged from, say, an amputation, 
is to be able to, to give them the blood of a healthy individual. And that's sort of the next step in combat medicine and what can be done at stabilization points. How do you stay safe when you're out in the field? Uh, well, I was very fortunate, um, especially on my second deployment. My team leader came from the intelligence community. Um, and so he was really the one who was looking at our routes that we were taking and uh, the way the, the lines of the war had been moving. Um, we, were, we made a lot of uh, changes and plans uh, at the last second based off of safety concerns that we might have. Um, but we had to do things like turn our cell phones off. Uh, the Russians are using cell phones to target people. So when we got pretty far east, we had to turn our cell phones off. We had to turn our walkie-talkies off because we didn't want anyone to be able to hear English over the air because that would have made us a bigger target. Um, we traveled in small groups, as a lot of the Ukrainians do as well. And um, we wore our ballistic gear and our helmet, and we always had a, an evacuation plan set up every single day with different checkpoints and different waypoints that we would evacuate ourselves to uh, if things went really sideways. I'm assuming that they are the ones who tell you where to go, but you have not yet been to Kiev. Would you like to go to Kiev, or is it just a matter of you go where you're told? Um, I mean, I would love to go to Kiev. Um, my team on my second deployment actually did go and train a bunch of soldiers in Kiev um, after I left. And unfortunately, I had to come home for my second deployment a little bit early because I had to, uh, to go back to work. And uh, the rest of my team was able to continue on with the mission for another two weeks. So my team did go to Kiev, and I would love to see it because I hear Kiev is an absolutely beautiful city. Um, but uh, I, I have not been able to, to be there myself. When you're deployed in Ukraine, how much communication can you have with home and the family and just make sure they know that you're okay? Um, it's actually pretty good. Um, the, the ability to use things like Signal and WhatsApp and even text messaging and emails is pretty readily available when you're off the front line. Um, when you're close to the front line, as I had mentioned before, you have to turn off your phone. You have to turn off your location services. You can't use anything like that because that does make you a target. But during the, the nights when we would come home, I was able to uh, have, um, have conversations with my wife. I was able to uh, FaceTime with her and have uh, uh, video chats and conversations. And I just kept a, a, um, a family text chain going and i was able to say like i'm still okay doing well and just let them know that i'm still alive and kicking you're there because you believe in the cause but you emotionally have to distance from what's going on you told me a story about how you trained 450 people in three days what's the rest of the story there um we're getting deep now um so in this context of this war, we know the casualty rates are unbelievably high. Um, I talked with people, both in my first and my second deployment, who would tell me stories such as, my platoon started with 27 people, and there are more of us who are still alive. My platoon started with 97 people, and there's 16 of us still alive. Um, the death toll is absolutely 
unbelievable. That would make even the most tenured of war experts shudder if they knew the actual numbers, which are definitely skewed. Um, as a trainer going into a situation where I was training service members who were on their way to the front lines, 450 of them over the course of three days, I know very well that a lot of them are not going to survive. I know very well that a lot of them at this point are probably already dead. And it's very difficult to train people and put humanity uh, in their eyes knowing that they may only have a few days, a few weeks, a few months to live. And so there has to be some kind of an emotional distance for us to be effective as trainers. That's powerful. You've done two deployments in Ukraine, then you come back to the USA. From what you see in our media coverage at all levels of media in this country, are we getting a true picture of what's going on, or are there things that we're not being told? Uh, there are absolutely things that, that we're, we're not being told. Um, I think that we, we get uh, an idea as to how the lines are moving, and uh, we get an idea as to uh, the, the big topics of the conflict on any given day. However, what we don't see is the human cost. And during this, this last summer counteroffensive, a lot of what I was hearing was this counteroffensive is not going as well as the Ukrainians had anticipated or had planned. And I don't think like, that is necessarily true because the lines may not have been moving as quickly as we as in, in the West and NATO want to see them move, but we are also not the ones who are actively losing hundreds of people for every single kilometer that's being retaken. So I don't think that we are emotionally engaged enough in this war to truly understand how these decisions are being made. But the information in terms of how the lines are moving, I think, is accurate, um, but it's not a full picture. And the, the toll of the actions on both sides is not something that we can fully absorb unless you are actively seeing uh, the death in front of your eyes. Arthur, in your tours in Ukraine, you certainly must have met plenty of people, military, civilians. Do you stay in touch with them when you come back to the USA? Um, some of them um, I do. The, the people who I was working with on my first, uh, my first deployment with UK Med, the Ukrainians and our translators, I still stay, stay fairly close with them, and um, I try to maintain communication. I unfortunately found out during my second deployment that one of my good friends uh, was conscripted and um, is waiting to go off to, uh, to his training to go to the front lines. Um, and I'm hopeful that he may find a way to not have to go. Um, and then I also still stay in pretty close contact with uh, our Ukrainian counterparts that we worked with on our second deployment. Um, we also made some close connections, and some of the people who we've trained have uh, found me on uh, Instagram or social media, and I'm able to just see sort of a day-to-day -day of, of what they're doing. Um, but also some of them don't speak English, and I don't speak Ukrainian, so our ability to actively communicate back and forth without a translator is a little bit difficult. Will there be a third deployment for you? Um, I would like there to be. 
if if it was up to me, I wouldn't have come home from the second one. Um, I feel very strongly that the three weeks I spent on my second deployment were some of the most important three weeks of my entire life. Um, I would like to go back. I would like to be actively involved in training and in direct patient care. Um, but the life of a humanitarian is very difficult, and it takes a very big toll on uh, the people who care about you. Um, I have had to ask my, my wife and my family to accept the fact that I'm going to one of the most dangerous places in the world. And that is uh, a big ask for people who care about you. I think it's very important for us as humanitarians to remember that even though it's hard for us to live in uh, very subpar living conditions, it is even harder for the people who care about us to um, accept the fact that there is an absence in their life that, uh, and, and day by day, they don't ever necessarily know that we are okay. So um, I would like to go back, but that's going to have to be a balance with the rest of my life. And Arthur, going off topic here a little bit, you're currently working with Nevada Fire. Explain what that is about. Uh, um, Arvada Fire. It's uh, Arvada is a, uh, a city that is uh, to the northwest of Denver. Um, I've been a paramedic uh, for about 14 years. I've been a firefighter for about 10 years, and I've worked for Arvada Fire uh, for about uh, four-ish years, four or five years. Um, um, it's that's my day-to-day job. Um, I work on a on a uh, fire apparatus and on a, uh, an ambulance and I respond to 911 calls. Um, it's what I'm very passionate about. It's something that uh, I feel very strongly about and has given me the skill set that I need to move forward and be able to do these trainings effectively, uh, in a combat setting. Well, I salute your work there and certainly salute your work that you've done in Ukraine. I hope you stay safe and Arthur, thank you very much for telling your story this morning. Well, thank you very much for having me.